when I'm speaking with clients, it's really trying to understand exactly the problem that they're looking to solve, trying to understand how we can meet their needs. And I don't, I really, I don't like saying no, even though it's a lot of my job, but I try to at least then help them accomplish other ways they can do something. Welcome to the Product Agility Podcast, the missing link between agile and product. The purpose of this podcast is to share practical tips, strategies, and stories from world-class thought leaders and practitioners. Why, I hear you ask. Well, I want to increase your knowledge and your motivation to experiment so that together we can create ever more successful products. My name is Ben Maynard, and I'm your host. What has driven me for the last decade to bridge the gap between agility and product is a deep-rooted belief that people and products evolving together can achieve mutual excellence. And in this episode, you're in for a treat. Not only do we have C.P. Richardson back, we also have Jenny Sarger joining him. Jenny Sarger, Yale-educated and Principal Product Manager at ArcXP, joined C.P. in explaining to us the origins of the platform and their relationship as a product and agile partnership. We explore how the acquisition of the Washington Post by the one and only Jeff Bezos led an internal collection of tools into becoming a successful SaaS platform. CP and Jenny explained to us how, in the early days, ArcXP was given away for free to universities so that they could understand their core user base. We talk about the idea of product vision cataracts, how sometimes things can get in the way and we just can't see our vision clearly enough to come up with a roadmap or something which is clearly communicable and really effective. And most of all, one thing that obviously I was very keen on exploring was how CP and Jenny successfully marry the world of agile and product. So without any further ado, I thank you very much for uh, tuning in and listening to this episode. You're in for an absolute treat. Please do remember, recommend it to somebody. There's so many golden nuggets in here. I can't see how you wouldn't want to. Hello, welcome everybody and welcome to two other people who are here with me today to talk about products and platforms. That's my main thing that I want to talk about today, specifically platforms, because we are joined by Jenny Sarja. Yes. Hello there. Yes. Glad to be here. Thanks, Ben. Good. (laughs) Yes. Good. Perfect. It's a tough last name. You nailed it. It is. It is, especially when you polluted my mind with something else earlier about how to say it. So I had to... I had to be careful because it's Saja like massager, right? Rhymes with massage. Yes, that's how I introduce it. Like massage rhymes with Raja. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. And and as useful as that was, confused my poor mind today. So <laughs> thank you very much for that, Jenny, Jenny Saja. Well, lovely to have you here. And CP Richardson, who has the honor of being Hi. the only returning guest ever on the podcast. <laughs> CP, I had that's no idea. <laughs> I know, like no, that's like a lot of pressure. I did not yeah. know that. No, do you know, and until about I don't know, ten seconds ago, I had no idea either. So it's really nice to welcome <laughs> you back, CP. <laughs> now that you said it, it is true now. So there it's, you go. It's as much as a surprise back. for me as it is for you. <laughs> so it's brilliant <laughs> to have you back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I I always love talking to you, and Jenny, I'm gonna love talking to you because we are here. Following on from the conversation with CP, where we explored various different things on facilitation, but also something named ArcXP. And I was super keen to learn more about ArcXP, the organization, the platform, its history, its origins. I'm not going to bore everybody with my voice and my kind of desire to get into this conversation. Instead, 
what I'm going to request is that Jenny and CP, can I throw it over to you to introduce yourselves to our lovely listeners? First of all, my name is CP Richardson. For those who first time hearing me, I am the director of portfolio management or program management at Park XP. I have been there for three years. Outside of that, I am also an IC Agile instructor, authorizer, and course accreditor. So if you are ever interested in doing something with IC Agile, especially when it comes to designing coursework and getting that coursework certified for you to deliver courses, that's what I do. In addition to that, as far as my experience as a facilitator and as an Agilist, I've been doing it, oh my God, I'm getting old, about 13, 14 years now. So it's been quite some time in the community. And also one of the best parts of what I do is I am the co-founder and vice president of an organization called Agile and Color that focuses on underrepresented populations within the Agile community to give them opportunities for coaching, for speaking, for mentorship, whatever you need to make sure you further your career within the Agile community or within that discipline. You can come to Agile of Color and we'll be able to get you squared away. And it's not just for underrepresented populations, it's for everybody in the Agile community, but our primary target is folks who typically go unheard or go unseen in the community. Yeah. Jenny, over to you. Awesome. Thanks, CP. It is my great privilege to get to work with CP. So my name is Jenny Saja. Don't lie, don't, lie, don't lie to those people like that. Oh, not it's not a lie. Like you know it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Jenny Saja. I'm principal product manager at ArcXP. I've been here for two years now. I've been working in the digital product space for about the last five years since my business degree. So my focus at ArcXP is on our central authoring platform. So I like to describe it a little bit like Google Docs on steroids for journalists. It is our content management system. It is the space where users are compiling rich multimedia stories for online storytelling. So I work with a team an agile team where we're focused on development. I work partnering with engineers, software designers. I'm very customer focused as well. So really trying to understand the needs of our users and how we can make this the best possible product for them. Jenny, you spoke with such passion about what you do. Mm. Uh, It's really nice to see. I'm wondering, could we kick off with a bit of a history lesson in how ArcXP came to where it is today. All right. Let me give you a little history lesson on ArcXP. So ArcXP was born out of the Washington Post, and we're still a division of the Washington Post. We are operated under the legacy newspaper brand. It's a pretty incredible institution to be a part of, just such a rich history of responsible journalism, pro-democracy in America. It's an incredible organization to work for. That's what originally attracted me to the Post and ArcXP in the first place is that legacy. And so The history of ArcXP is when Jeff Bezos came and acquired the Washington Post back in 2013, about 10 years ago now, he saw that there was this really rich homegrown software that had been coming out of the Post. And basically, the Washington Post was on the bleeding edge of digital transformation for most major media outlets around the world. They were really kind of the front runner when it came to providing an incredible online storytelling experience. And basically, what what that acquisition spurred within the post was this realization that we had something that was marketable. We had something that was really cutting edge when it came to how we were putting out journalism online, telling that story across multiple channels, across multiple platforms in the media space. And so what then happened was it was first ARC Publishing, then rebranded as ARC XP, grown out of the post where basically we took these discrete tools that were being used internally at the Washington Post to publish online 
and started packaging them and creating this more integrated platform as a SaaS product that we could sell to most major media outlets around the world. I believe we power sites in, I think, 27 countries that reach 1.5 billion unique users every month. It is a broad swath of the media landscape, and they're all powered by our software. So for me, I'm based in Chicago, for example, and the Chicago Tribune is one of ArcXP's customers. We've got other large clients like Morningstar and Reuters, just big brands in the media space. And we're exploring and continuing to explore the enterprise space as well. How can we make this digital publishing software really you know, rich and valuable for clients who are just trying to tell their brand story online? I never knew it. Jeff Bezos was part of that story. My understanding was that he saw ArcXP as part of the value driver in mm. leveraging the acquisition and what he was interested in. It's fascinating. I'm assuming there must have been some other level of recognition of that internally at that point, and he was the catalyst for it, or, or was it like a fresh idea? And I was like, wow, we'd never considered that before. You know, that's a great question. CP, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know if you know exactly when we started exploring using this as uh, software that we could start selling to other organizations? You know, it's interesting. Though I don't know exactly what the catalyst is, I, what I do know was that our first clients were actually school newspapers. And we yes. were given the software out for free just to see if this was something mm. not as viable that other organizations were to pick up. Yeah. So it was actually really kind of cool to see that because I think USC, University of Southern California, was actually one of the clients, the early, early adopters. Yeah. And I, I know for me too, I went to Yale undergrad. And so my alma mater was also on the, an early adopter of the ArcXP platform, the Yale Daily News, the student paper. They were an early test subject for this as well so to validate whether or not this was something that was you know usable and functional. And so we, we gave it away for free to these schools. Fascinating. Hey, J- Jenny, Jenny, where did you go to school at again? <laughs> I, I went to oh. Yale <laughs> Yeah, enough of I'm that, never ashamed you. about it. Always happy to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for the school for a number of years. And, yeah. you know, always I, just love I love hearing it. It's so cool. Now, <clears throat> this started then as a bunch of discrete tools, which were used internally within the Washington Post. And when they were this collection of discrete tools, were they... Were they under any banner? Were they collected in any way? Or were they lots of discrete but interrelated tooling? Because I'm assuming that if we thought of it from the user's perspective, they may be in discrete tools, but they spanned that journey that that user was taking at that time. So was there any label or boundary put on that collection at that time? That's a good question, Ben. So mm. I I think they they were they were discrete tools because they were used by different people in the newsroom. Right. Actually. Okay. So the way a lot of newsrooms are structured is often you have the folks that are the content creators, those are the journalists. But then you also have content planners and editors who are planning things out, they're scheduling things to go live. Then you also have folks who are designing the front end web pages and the way that end reader user experience should look. So the way that these tools were built is they were kind of for discrete user groups, I would say. One thing that unified them is when they were all internally at the post, they were all named after different fish. I am not sure what the background <laughs> is there, but um, occasionally I will find things where it's like, oh, anglerfish or goldfish. Or anglerfish uh, these yeah. are some of the old names that we would call things. We have, you know, all, all sorts of internal authentication systems that relate to the ocean as well. So 
I think we had to rebrand the naming a little bit, but the one unifying theme seemed to be that we were named around around the fish. Interesting. I don't know what the obsession yes. was with fish. I mean, it's cool. You heard some of the names of our internal tools. You're like, okay, I get that because of its design and its purpose and what it does. But then you hear some other names, you're like, but why though? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Our photo management tool was at the time, it was called Anglerfish. And I asked some of the original people that were there, like, why do they call it that? They're like, somebody had a brilliant idea to name it after fish. And I was like, what even is an angler fish to begin with? So I go on Google. So I'm like, ah, that's what it makes sense. It still doesn't make sense why our photo management tool is called angler fish, but yeah. Isn't an angler fish one of those deep sea fish that has the light hanging in front of its face? Yes. Is that what it? The dangling. I think that's yeah. what it is. I think it's like a photographer <laughs> with a flashbulb. That's ah, my guess. Ah, so. genius. Do you want to hear uh, some? Uh, see, see, see. And this is why we have Jen. <laughs> She's way smarter, way cooler, way more interesting to talk to than uh, me. I mean, I'm just here for comic relief. CP. <laughs> uh, I mean, you don't get into Yale by being an idiot, CP, do you? <laughs> I've heard it said. What I find then interesting, I assume then that when it goes to, say, a school, and in the Washington Post, there were these discrete roles and there was people then doing one piece and then someone else doing the rest and doing the rest. When you take it into a school, I'm guessing, or when you go into any smaller organization, those roles are blended together into singular people. But they were discovering and what it was valuable, but also those individual people were able to use different tools. Like, whereas before it may be individual people with individual tools, actually people were having a broader view of it. I, I would agree. I think I would agree with that. I think, you know, Coming out of that and only the direction that we've gone to, you know, ever since has been becoming more integrated, less so discrete tools, more of an integrated platform, having that overall vision of how these all unify and how they could be used, like you said, by a single content creator per se, rather than these discrete teams. Now, when it was made a decision that you were going to spin it out, it was going to become a separate thing and it was being given to schools for free, when in the journey did you join there's a Washington Post or, or ArcXP. I think for me, when I went in the journey of that, I joined right as we were going from publishing to XP. It was a lot of me and John to saying that, hey, we're really good at working with publishers and building tools that are important to them, that are valuable to them in that perspective. But we want to do more. Just like any other SaaS company, again, you want to constantly expand and try to provide different offerings for different client bases, right? And so I came in right as they were making that shift from publishing to XP. And that was a lot of me and drawing the sand to say, hey, we're more than just working with publishers. We do all sorts of other things, such as a site called SweetExchange.com, which is, helps the Golden State Warriors basketball team, especially now during the NBA playoffs, to sell luxury suites during those events to provide an experience for those fans that will be unforgettable, right? Those big major changes and shifts into what we are doing and what we're building for clients. That was one of those big markers of this is what we're going to do. And this is an example on a very, very broad and very wide and recognizable brand. And that was a good opportunity there to help us make that definitive shift from just publishers to publishers and other folks. Interesting. Very interesting. So if I've got this right, then it was initially you were dealing on a project basis with publishers coming to you and you were onboarding them onto it. And then at some point you said, actually, no, this is going to be something different. There's more opportunities which we could exploit by opening up this as a platform to many other non-traditional publishing organizations. Is that a fair 
Nice summary. I'd say yes, but how I think about it is not necessarily non-traditional publishing. Way I consider it, especially when you consider something like Sweet Exchange, they want to tell the story of like, hey, this experience is going to be top tier if you purchase this suite. Instead of just going to a Warriors game and sitting in a section that's like in the nosebleeds where you maybe can't necessarily see the action, why not just take that once in a lifetime experience for some folks? It's not necessarily non-traditional. They're just telling a different story than, let's say, a publisher. They're just telling it from a different perspective, right? And how I think about it, especially where RKXP, the best place that we can play at, is that people on the side of, especially with brands that are telling the perspective of an athlete, we have the advantage there because our tools are built for telling those kinds of stories. And that's, I think, one of the, the best parts about RKXP currently right now is because we have that natural advantage because we work with thousands of publishers, over 2,000 different sites, telling stories in multiple different languages. Not a lot of companies can do that right now. And I think that's the really cool part about being where we are currently with RXP and the, the growth that we have in front of us right now. Our core is storytelling. You nailed it, CP. Mm. It, it's really anybody who wants to be able to promote their story online, whatever that story is, if it's a brand story, if it's a news story, but really we empower storytellers. How? What, what makes it different then to say your competition or to what someone, if they wanted to, could try and kind of craft on their own? So one thing that's different is I think we are designed and equipped to tell stories at a scale in a way that is far outpacing any of our competitors. And let me give you an example. So a lot of our clients are large multimedia conglomerates. So they might own news stations all across the country, all around the world. So local television news stations and each of those news stations have their own website that they're managing. And so I think what, what ArcXP does, what we're particularly uniquely equipped to do is to empower clients to tell stories across multiple sites. So for example, one of the products that my team has been working on recently is the, the opportunity for clients to create different variants of the same story. So let's say you've got a story that you're trying to target differently to clients in let's say Kansas City or Philadelphia, depending on where you know the Super Bowl was this year in the US. And so you want to highlight a different player for the Philadelphia market, let's say. You can tailor that story in a way. So you're using the same content, but repurposing it to make it more customized for the regional audience wherever they're reading that site. So that's something that I think we're equipped to do, to be able to figure out ways to meet end readers where they are all around the world. And we also empower very large brands that are managing dozens, if not hundreds of websites to be able to strategically and efficiently share their content across all of those different sites. So when we exchanged some emails before the show, Jenny, you said... One of the points was growing from a client service startup to a platform SaaS company and how to go from client projects to platform projects. Now, I'm intrigued then, given we have that lovely background and we're understanding more about what ArcXP is. Would you mind shedding it? Give us a bit of color on on that statement. Yeah, absolutely. So I think... ArcXP is now we're an established SaaS brand, but over the last few years, we've been transforming from this startup growth environment into this established SaaS company. And I think that startup growth, which I've experienced at Arc and my past roles as well, 
Part of that is moving away from being this white glove, custom customer experience with rich onboarding, a lot of handholding, a lot of customized features for particular early adopters of the platform. It's moving away from that into focusing on customer research, focusing more intensely on how do we meet the needs of a broader user base of people? How do we scale something that is not just a niche deliverable for a single client, but rather how can we build features and functionality that are going to be valuable for as many of our clients as possible? And so I think that has been a real shift in mindset in the product organization. Previously, a lot of product roadmaps might be made up of things that were commissioned by particular large clients at ARC. And so where we're headed now is thinking a little bit more, even if we get those types of incoming requests from clients, how do we prioritize that relative to the other needs that we're seeing in the marketplace? How do we balance that with the needs that we're hearing from some of our other customers as well? And so how do we move away from this very heavy touch, white glove onboarding experience into something that quickly scales that allows folks to onboard onto the platform more easily and allows folks to scale their organizations more easily using our software. This is one of the problems that I've seen in a number of particularly startups is when their roadmap is just a series of client requests, which on the face of it aren't related and they are just point things. And then often I think this is one of the tragedies at times is that when these smaller, and to be fair, larger organizations tend to get themselves in this situation sometimes as well, is that they make those individual customizations for a particular customer. And so they have a different version for that different customer, or then they make the change for one customer and it has a negative impact on someone else or stops them from doing something. Are you saying then that you're being able to or have been able to move across from having a roadmap, which is just the, the big client requests into something which is more strategic that particular client requests can fit into? Like, How is that? What is that process then? That's a good question. I would say, honestly, Ben, it's it's really a challenge. It's it's hard because especially we have large legacy clients that have been with us for a long time. They're used to more of that white glove experience. And so trying to balance some of their needs with the, these broader strategic initiatives where we want to scale the product following a product vision, it's definitely tricky. Part of the way that I think we've been able to make some of that transition is to start being more strategic about which of those client requests we're taking. So for example, let's say a client is coming in asking for some particular way that they want to add metadata to their stories. They want to be able to embed rich elements within their story in some way. And then what we try to do is it's like, okay, I'm hearing this, but let me go out and validate this with other users. Let me start talking to other folks outside of this particular client that's asking for this, trying to understand are there use cases where this meets the needs for some of our other clients as well. I don't think those sort of incoming product requests from clients are ever going to go away. Yeah. Or at least not in the next oh. couple of years. I mean, you, you wouldn't want them to almost because no, that's, that's, that's great means, feedback. It, right. We certainly want that feedback and we want to keep it coming. But I think where where we're going through some growing pains now and where we're trying to strategically focus is understanding which of those types of client commitments and client requests that are coming in are ones that are strategically viable that we can start selling to other clients as well. I think that's where we've been focusing our attention. And so as a product manager, for me managing my product, I'm thinking about the broader user base and who this is going to be valuable for. So if I'm hearing something coming in from the market, I want to validate that it's valuable for other users as well. 
I mean, that hard stuff, that's the real work I find often. It is. <laughs> it definitely is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and it's so refreshing to hear that, you know, that you're... But you're doing that. I say it's refreshing because I, th- I find that all too often we end up in situations, I know my, the products that we're building aren't quite at the same scale as yours, but definitely it's situations I've been in in the past where a client shouts loudly and they're so scared about perhaps damaging that relationship and, and that contract that they end up investing in something and some work which takes so long to complete, but actually they're missing out on so many opportunities to do smaller, more valuable, more strategic things because they're just stuck on this what seemingly is valuable in the short term, but doesn't pay off as much as the other stuff in the long term. It's that balancing of that. I think there's a guy called Peter Senge said that whenever you look at really well-working systems where you could look at it and say, that that seems like an intelligent system, intelligent people, is because they always manage to balance the long term with the short term. And I think that kind of sounds like what you're going for at the moment then is keeping those clients happy, but also being strategic and keeping to that vision. I was going to say another large thing that we're looking at, we're a very international business as well. And so we are focused on exploring what other markets can we get into? How can we support clients all around the globe? And balancing that long-term and short-term vision. And another thing that we're working on this year, which is a monumental effort, is being able to support right-to-left languages in our platform. So being able to start targeting audiences in the Middle East, so in Arabic and Hebrew, and being able to open up that new sales opportunity for us in that region. That's an enormous initiative for anybody who's who's worked in any sort of UI space. How you actually translate that into a right-to-left universe is pretty fascinating. And CP's team is helping to lead that effort and trying to make sure that we're coordinated across all of our teams. And, and you know what? It's actually glad you brought that example because thinking about that effort just in general, what I found, at least the UI and the experiences on the front end for ArcXP is pretty well buttoned up to handle right to left languages. Of course, there are going to be some like, oh, like the cursor should not be on the left hand side. The cursor should be on the right hand side. Whatever, like those small minor tweaks, those changes are fine. I think the struggle, I think we'll, we'll find over time is just making sure that we're providing that same seamless, great experience for those customers that are left to right as versus right to left. And those are just the small things that we really need to get right and get crisp just so we can make sure they're delivering that best-in-class publishing experience as we do for clients who, let's say, read or read or write English or Spanish versus somebody who may write Urdu, right? So just making sure that those experiences are similar. But one question I actually want to kick over to you, Jenny, and then feel free to jump in on this one, just in a hypothetical sense, because I just love hearing you two talk because... This is awesome because y'all are like, again, way smarter than me, but I would love to hear this question. When we think about conversations that we have with our clients or with the client, with your clients in general, and it's like, hey, we want to do this thing. It's going to make us a ton of money and it's going to be amazing and it's a fantastic experience. And you have to tell them no, or you have to tell them not right now. How does that conversation even go? Because I know... I. Some days it's hard for me to tell people no. And I think that's the reason why I'm in the position where we have so many different projects that are our portfolio that we're managing right now. But for me, it's hard for me to say no. So I would love to know tips or techniques on how do y'all say maybe not right now or not at all, knowing what the impacts of that potential relationship may, may be. CP, you're really speaking my language here. 
<laughs> well, I'm very pleased I could facilitate this conversation between you two. Yeah. I, 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 I have had a joke ever since I became a product manager where I say 90% of being a product manager is knowing how to diplomatically say no to all parties. I spend a lot of my day saying no to clients, to my manager, to my team. <laughs> So I think part of being a product manager in my experience is trying to make sure people are all marching to the beat of the same drum, that we're rallying together to build something great and we are moving towards the same common vision. And in order to keep focus on that vision, you often have to say no. You have to say no to maintain that focus. I think the best way to approach that has always been with a deep sense of empathy. And I think that's how I get there is so I... When I'm speaking with clients, it's really trying to understand exactly the problem that they're looking to solve, trying to understand how we can meet their needs. And I I really, I don't like saying no, even though it's a lot of my job, but I try to at least then help them accomplish other ways they can do something. Thinking about workarounds or thinking around ways that we might be able to support them with some sort of custom code on their end that they're managing. That's no, one thing like, about no. what was that? I know I was gonna say like, oh, we're with the Cusico. Like, I thought we got out What's interesting, you know, one thing that I think is interesting to point out, Ben, is about Arc is that we are we're fundamentally like a facilitator. It's like a, customers come to us to partner with us because we have great technical expertise, and so clients still actually manage a ton of their own tech stack. Arc is a tool that is helping to make their processes more efficient but they still manage a lot of their own custom code. And so we support them in doing that. And my customers, often the folks that I'm talking to, are also product manager counterparts at these media organizations and at our client sites where they might be the senior product manager for newsroom tools. And so they are managing that company's instance of Arc. They are adding some customization layers onto it. And they're developing features off of what we have for their own internal users. So that flexibility, I think, empowers us to say no a little bit more in a way, in that it's like we, we've we opened up this platform in a way that you can build on top of it um, and leverage it to meet your needs. But I think approaching it with empathy for me is always the best bet. That's also approaching it in empathy with my developers, where they want to build something that's really exciting and really cool. And maybe nobody in the market wants it, but this is something that really interests them. And so trying to figure out too, how to balance that with how do we channel some of that energy towards exploring things that we think might be more viable in the market? And how do we focus on on building towards that direction? So mm-hmm. saying no CP is definitely a very real part <laughs> of a product manager responsibility in my experience. And that is why I stick on the project side and I let all of y'all handle those conversations. Once it gets into the process, hey, I am good to go. And I can tell people no because it doesn't follow the flow. Try again. I've got about 18 different things I'd like to talk about now. Go for it. No, no, but it's just, give myself a headache. Um, Rapid fire. Yes, ma'am. Maybe so. I'll write off a few things. So it was a lady called Gabrielle Benefield who said to me many years ago that some of the art of being a good product person is about being to exercise corporate judo. (laughs) I love that. Which is where you take the momentum that someone's coming to you with and then you help redirect it. So you take the momentum and you subtly redirect it into an avenue which is actually more useful for what you're trying to achieve. So you can smile and say, 
oh, you know, tell me all about it and show that empathy and connect with them and then find a way just to nudge them in a slightly different direction perhaps, which sometimes can work because then they go off on a different trail and perhaps then come back with a different different suggestion. But that doesn't always work. What I thought was really interesting, Jenny, for me, was when you said about you spend a lot of your time saying no. And I had this thought that not being able to say no is effectively like giving your product, from a product management perspective, cataracts. Do you know what cataracts are? I do, but how so? Mm. I'm curious. I think well, because if you keep saying yes, your vision becomes blurry. Mm. like you don't know where you're going if you're just saying yes to everyone and actually the ability to say no helps you keep a clarity of vision it means you're sticking to that vision and i think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do as a as a product person i've always thought it's a bit the ability to say no or at least not yet and you saying you're spending so much of your time saying it but one that's wonderful and second that you're empowered to do that and i wonder then if many people who then uh, they're not empowered to say that and their products do become blurry and their vision as to where they're going does become blurry because they haven't got the empowerment in their role to to say no and for it to be listened to and be acted upon. But when we think about how dynamic the market shifts and how things change, how do you then turn around and balance it? Because I'm thinking about from a very like, from an agile perspective that we go where the value is and we deliver in small increments and we make sure that we have something that is working, see if it sticks to the wall. And if not, let's pivot. That's the beauty of using Agile, right? When you were saying like no to a bunch of things, we then end up losing value or maybe mm-hmm. start end up losing potential value within <sighs> what our customers may want, right? That's and- push, push one of my buttons at us, CP. I've got an, I've, well, it's not, it's not an answer to it, but I, I would just say, even though I say no a lot, I never stop listening. And what that means is I am constantly collecting and gathering that type of feedback that I'm hearing from clients that I'm hearing from internal stakeholders and trying to identify patterns. I also think a lot of working in product is, is really being able to pick up on patterns and the things that are, that are frequently coming up. And so then to me, those patterns inform where to go to next. And I think part of being agile, I agree with UCP is it's, we have to be able to pivot. We have to be able to respond to the market. At ARC this year, I think we're even changing the way that we do roadmaps. So they're more on a rolling basis. It's a shorter time frame, but they roll continuously. And I think that allows us to be more agile. That allows us to be more flexible. If in the course of a quarter, I am hearing just overwhelming market feedback in some particular direction, that this is the product that we need to build in order to be able to sell in this particular region, that allows us to then shift focus. Saying no does not mean that you're not open to shifting focus or you're not open to listening to feedback. Mm -hmm. To me, it means Mm -hmm. I'm kind of trying to protect the time and sanity of my developers and my teammates so they can maintain (laughs) that level of focus on what it is that they're working on and and actually driving that through to a completed Mm -hmm. built product. But then once we Mm -hmm. move beyond that, then I think there's there's plenty of opportunity to explore what people have been saying and all those inputs that I've been gathering Mm -hmm. in the process while I've been saying, not right now. Yeah, well, that's it. And it, it's a it's a no. It's not a never. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's a not right okay. now. Yeah. 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 And I, I think CP that one of the things that really has bugged me for the last particular last decade about the agile world is the 
and I'm not having a dig at you here, CP, right? You know, we are, I think we are friends enough, right? You know, I'm just coming from a good place. I would, I would hope so at this point. I yeah, I hope, so. yeah, I hope so. There we are. I still owe you a trip. My bad. Like, thanks, guys. I saw you a trip, but yes. <laughs> anyway, um, I was yes. in, almost diverted and talk about actually my intention to take my kids to Chicago, actually, Jenny. Oh, at some point. I want to take them to the Galloping Ghost. Oh, I've heard that's supposed to be incredible. Uh, that phenomenal. recently came onto my radar for anyone who's place? unaware. It's a huge arcade, and rather yeah. than pay per machine, you just pay an entrance fee and everything's free. It's very yeah. cool. What? Um, oh, yeah. I need to go it, to it, this. I mean, for what? Isn't that one of the biggest in the States? It is phenomenally large. It is such yes, an it's amazing place. Yeah, it's supposed to be place. enormous. I have never yeah. been, but it is on my oh, to-do get list. Get yourself there. So. But then again, I have spent many, many, many evenings in the Emporium, if it's still a place in Chicago, which is one of the barcades out on the outskirts of Chicago, which is a brilliant place. But I've not been there either. Oh, I used to go. Let's see. I, oh, anyway, we'll talk about Chicago another time. I miss going to Chicago, <laughs> as you can tell. But, but we can talk um, about Chicago all day. That is another passion yeah. of mine. Anyway, no. What I was going to yeah. say was before I got really distracted, the Agile world has taken the manifesto to literally at times, and also too much in isolation. But some mm-hmm, of the things mm-hmm, that it said, mm-hmm. I mean, interestingly, the one thing it never said about delivering, you know, the primary measure of progress should be working software, didn't make any mention of it being valuable or usable, <laughs> or that it's a wise investment, right? And then that was what I found interesting, was that it just said working software. And I think back then, working software meant more than just it's working. I think nowadays, it, it doesn't mean it's just working. We need, it, we need to include something there which articulates the value of it. And I think that there's... Some, in some situations, you have a software product or platform where you can just say yes to everything and experiment and have some degree of success. But that unfettered, almost unrigorous, really broad way of just saying yes to everything leads to a, a colossal waste of time sometimes. And if you're a startup, for as an example, or a scale-up, you haven't got time and money to waste. And if you're a large organization, your bosses probably don't think you've got the time to waste. So this is why I think like products and agile come together really well is when actually there is an element of rigor that happens at the beginning just to see, is this worth investing? Is this worth actually experimenting with rather Mm -hmm. than just chucking money into it? Because CP, you know, and Jenny, you know probably this as well, what seems like a small little throwaway idea ends up being a money Mm bill. And then you end up getting so far into it with a really, you know, with a hypothesis which maybe hasn't been thought out that well. You're not sure what you're testing, and it just drags on. And then people want to be borrowed, or teams get, and you end up in this horrible cycle. And I think, Jenny, what you said for me is part of the answer is that yeah, you look and see patterns, and you conduct user research, mm-hmm. and you look to do some of that pre-validation to increase your confidence enough so that you want to make the investment to see if it's going to stick. And for me, this is what, when I think about product creation, product ideation, discovery, it's each stage you go through, it's just increasing your confidence to further invest in it. And it depends upon the context. In some contexts, they want to go for a huge degree of confidence building before you invest. In some situations, there's very little. But I think that there's always some value in having a certain degree of confidence that actually it is worth investing in to see if it sticks rather than just pouring money away, which is ultimately what happens sometimes. Hence my love of this idea of like product agility, which is bringing it together. Super quick sidebar. There's a metaphor in this. It's like uh, the show, the Mandalorian, where you have a set that takes helmets off and others that don't. I am in the, you got to keep your helmet on at all times. Sorry. <laughs> and then it's over here like new age. Oh, hey guys, how, how you doing? This is actually funny because I do take the manifesto very literally sometimes. 
because <clears throat> when I think of working software, and yes, you mentioned it being valuable, we don't know if it's valuable. Just build something, get it out there, and just see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as a product matures or as a startup matures, or even as ArcXP, for example, it, it matures, right? It's not just we're blindly investing cash and money and things into what clients request, right? We have to have that ability to discern what makes sense and what does not, right? And I think a lot of times this is where you make that shit. And I think this is a beautiful, beautiful thing about agility and, and product. And that is you take those practices, those principles, those values from agility, and you apply it with a private mindset and approach to things. And those two marry together, you end up with a beautiful, amazing hybrid where you can still deliver working software that Ben mentioned earlier that is valuable for your end users. So, yeah. Yeah. And it has to be. Or at least, you know, product, product management, product ownership is gambling. And you just want to have, sometimes you're happy just to have a gamble. Other times you want to increase your confidence that it's going to pay off. It's a lot of strategic bets. I would agree with that. I think it's a lot, it's a lot of placing strategic bets. And the goal would be to de-risk it as much as possible, but there's certainly always going to be risk. But I think the more um, connection and empathy I can build with my users, I, the more that I feel that risk goes down, the more that I feel like I have some degree of confidence and comfort that I am in fact meeting a need that exists. Have you heard, I'm just going for those of you looking, watching the video, I was just typing into Google, Itamar Gilad. The, um, it sounds familiar, but got, refresh me, please. <laughs> he came up with something called the confidence wheel, oh. which I will put a link to this in the show notes as well but the one thing i love about the confidence wheel it isn't that it's rigid and prescriptive and it must be followed but it really talks to this idea of how much confidence do you want to have before you take the next step and what i love is that at a near zero on the confidence wheel he's got self-conviction like gut feel (laughs) and how many products go awry because it's just a some gut feels that paid off and then a load of gut feels that just didn't didn't quite work out you know, Absolutely. or yeah, or the thematic support. Everyone's talking about web through, everyone's talking about crypto, or everyone's talking about yeah, you know, chat GPT and AI. So we must do something in regards to that. Well, mm. is this what your users really want? Is this what the market mm. is asking for? And it's never a case of just saying no or yes. It's that's that research, it's understanding the bigger picture, and it's coming up with ideas that people don't expect. And so ends episode one. Episode two is coming up next week. In this episode, we learned about how ArcXP is not the brainchild of Jeff Bezos, but he definitely had a part to play. We also got to know Jenny and CP a little bit better. And I'll say it again, how Jenny was educated at Yale, because that was a big deal. I'm not joking. I mean, (laughs) it's quite a big deal. In the next episode, what are we going to be looking at? Well, we're going to look how at ArcXP, they reimagined the way that Agile operates. We discuss how maybe Scrum Mastery isn't really a thing and what we should be focusing on is Scrum Partnerships. And we look at how Agile coaches, Scrum Masters, these people that support us in our Agile ways of working, maybe should be seen as pollinators rather than coaches. And we'll also explore how ArcXP structure their collaborative cross-functional teams so that it isn't just Agile or product, it's a bit of both. Thank you very much for taking time to listen to this and thank you to Michael Forney for interacting with me on LinkedIn 
and give me some food for thought. Your comments were far too kind, but yeah, to know that you listen and that you're there supporting us, Michael, is fantastic. I promised you a shout out and here it is. Michael, thank you very much, my friend. And hopefully at some point we get to meet. So let's end it there. Thank you for your time. I am Ben Maynard and this is the Product Agility Podcast. <laughs>